Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca. Hey, this is Daniel, and welcome back to another episode of In Doubt. Today, we are going to revisit an interview that Isaac did with Rick Eamstra, who is the Director of Research and Media Relations at the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Rick is here to discuss with us the issue that seems to be plaguing young adults around our nation and our world. Why are people leaving the church in record numbers? We're glad that you're here to listen as we find out why young people are leaving and what we can do to prevent it. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name is Isaac. I'm one of the hosts of In Doubt, as well as the pastor at North Valley Baptist Church in Mission, BC. And with me on the show today is Rick Heemstra. And Rick is Director of Research and Media Relations at the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. He speaks on, I'm sure, many things, but primarily on just, you know, Canadian church, cultural trends, things like that. Um, And it's always good to have a fellow Canadian on the show as well. So thanks for being with us today, Rick. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so you you were recently part, um, I guess it was two years ago, but I mean, some of the stuff that you found is obviously still in play today. But you were recently part of putting together this thick study that you and your team called Renegotiating Faith with the subtitle of The Delay in Young Adult Identity Formation and What It Means for the Church in Canada. Just for listeners, that's what we're going to be digging into today. So I hope that's already caught your interest. But before we do that, Rick, just so people know that you're an actual person, that you have a personality, that you are real, could you just share with us a bit more of who you are, uh, maybe beginning with how how you met Jesus and, and where you're at today? Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Stratford, Ontario. I met, uh, met Jesus at a crusade, actually, that was at Northwestern High School in Stratford. I can't remember why I went. But I do remember that uh, when the altar call was given at the crusade that I went up and I just felt the Holy Spirit and God's love flood my heart. And that was a real turning point for me. Um, subsequently, my faith developed slowly during high school, just because uh, not in a situation where there was good discipleship, but really connected with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and University. And that became very transformational for me in terms of thinking about our faith and and our culture and what that means. And so out of that, I I decided that I uh, wanted to go to seminary. And so I went to seminary and uh, subsequently pastored a church, a Wesleyan church, for six years. Um, But through a number of life circumstances, I came sort of to the end of that time and had a lot of questions about, you know, why is it so hard for Canadians to receive the gospel? And and about that time, this role at EFC opened up, and it's it was on research on on the church in Canada. And I thought this is an outlet where I could bring my uh, giftings in mathematics. That was my undergraduate degree, and I I had taught and uh, to bring this all together and to think about uh, what's going on in our culture. So I've been doing that for now for about twelve years. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing uh, some of your story there, uh, Rick. That's that's awesome. Perhaps maybe to kind of jump us into this uh, conversation, there's so much to discuss here and and we'll just probably get through some of it, but 
could you just give us maybe a, a general working knowledge of what you and your other researchers were looking at in this study? Why you guys were looking at what you were looking at? Basically, I guess, what is your report about in sort of a more synthesized way? So in, in many ways, this is a follow-up study to a, another study called Hemorrhaging Faith. And this, this study looked at why young adults are leaving the church. And so this study, we had a group of our affiliates. And in this case, the affiliates for this, they, they became part of the partnership where Truth Matters Ministries, Youth for Christ, Power to Change and InterVarsity, and the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. And we had another funding partner who just wanted to be a silent partner. But their question was, how do we help more young adults to stay in their faith and to grow in their faith across the transition from high school to the next phase in life? Because one of the things that the Hemorrhaging Faith Report told us was that major life transitions are often exit points for young adults. And so, you know, you can see that uh, there are a couple of campus ministries involved here. So they're interested in how do you help more young adults end up in a Christian campus ministry? But this is a wider kingdom question too, right? How do we help those? And we were specifically looking at those that had some kind of connection to the church. How do we help them to maintain their faith and to flourish in it? Okay, yeah. So in terms of that, uh, you guys, you know, kind of, I don't know if you coined it, but you guys found this new kind of identity time called emerging adulthood. What exactly is that? What does that entail? What are its marks of this thing called emerging adulthood? Okay, so we didn't coin this. Okay, uh, this this goes actually back to a psychologist who was writing in the in the early '60s, and I should just back up a little bit sure. about the way that our time and culture has changed. So, pre-industrial revolution, uh, a lot of people lived right with their families, and their families had trades, and they worked in the home, and education was done in the home. The industrial revolution comes along; parents are moved out of the home into the factories, and also, schooling and education moves out into the schools. But still, you're in a society where you don't need a lot of education in order to participate in the adult world. After the Second World War, this starts to change really quickly. In 1950 in Canada, only about 50% of adults had a high school education. That rapidly changes. In 1951-52, you have the Massey Commission which uh, recommended investments in education. And this is where all the funding for public universities, colleges, uh, starts really to ramp up. By this point in time, you've got over 70% of young adults will go on to get some kind of education. Now, this need to prolong the time that it takes to have the skills to participate in the adult world started to open up this window of time in people's lives that we call emerging adulthood. Now, it is characterized by uh, searching, by questioning. It's thought of, uh, Erickson talked about it as being a moratorium, a place where everything just kind of stops and hangs there. Um, but often what it also is accompanied by is people move away from home to a university town. They move out of their home churches. They move out of their communities and they're exploring their identity. But it's a place where you haven't yet made any life commitments, not any big ones, right? And this lack of having made commitments is important. And, and significantly for the church, it also is a time where we encourage people to question the commitments they may have already made. And if they're coming from a church situation where they've made a commitment to Christ, all of a sudden in this time period, they're being told to question that. Right. Yeah, that's, it's fascinating. So 
in your study, it talks about this idea that to recognize oneself as an adult, it's it's kind of having a role or a settled role in in a community. So this emerging adulthood is a time when you've left your pre-existent, you know, community. You've left your home. You've left your 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 church. You're in a new place, and you haven't yet established a role in that community that you are newly formed in. So that it's that space in between of these two kind of identities. That's this emerging adulthood. Is that right? Yeah. So, so think of it this way. Yeah. You know, when you're in high school, you're part of your parents' family. And then, you know, in high school, everybody starts to do what psychologists call, they start to differentiate from the family of origin. They start, they want my own identity. Right. And so you kind of push away from that a little bit, but in terms of establishing a new identity, there's all this kind of exploration, but you need certain things to be able to do that. And you kind of put everything on hold. This is one of the, the characteristics of emerging adulthood. All those decisions are put on hold until you get one anchor spot. And once you make one decision, you start to make the others. And usually, usually for most young adults, that's a career choice. And, and we, we actually hold on to all of those things. But what's happening is that career choice is delayed for a lot of us. Even when people choose to go to school, they're not choosing a career. Right. A lot of people, when they choose a program, they choose the program that will let them pivot in the most directions. Right. Because they really haven't got it figured out. Right. Sure. But they're not actually figuring out what that career is going to be until kind of last minute. And a lot of people that's even driven off closer to age 30. That's very different than even a short amount of time ago. In the 1981, when the census, the typical thing was for young adults in that time to leave high school and to just start working. Right. Now, the typical thing is to leave high school and go into school, and this kind of opens up that space. But what we need people to kind of understand about emerging adulthood is that in many cases, they don't make those commitments because they don't have the capacity to make those commitments. So think about this, where, you know, a lot of us who have homes are really glad that we have homes whose value has just gone through the roof, right? It's hundreds of thousands of dollars more than when we started. So in my parents' generation, a house was three times an annual income on average. Now it's six. And and we're really pleased about that. But what this means for young adults is that they can't buy a home. Yeah. And if they can't buy a home, one of the ways that you set out your identity is, you know, I get my own place. I get married. I have kids. I get a job. All of those things are really hard to do. And what we have to realize as the church is, is that while they're waiting on all of those other things, they're also waiting to say, am I going to follow Jesus or not? And that's sort of the crucial thing where economics sort of intersects with faith. And we don't kind of realize how these things have an influence on each other. Now, there are ways that and we will talk about that later on in our conversation, but there are ways that you can address some of that. But This is kind of the landscape that is put out. It's one of delay. It's one of exploration. But it's not just that. It's also, I don't have the capacity to set out these identity markers that would let me move on. Right, right. So what is it about, particularly someone's faith, let's say they they have a strong faith, you know, family growing up, and then they come into this emerging adulthood, they've moved out of their home, they're in a university setting, they're struggling with some of these issues. Why would faith be one of the things that they kind of put up in the air with everything else? It just seems, why would that be one of the many other aspects of identity that they have to think through? Because faith is something that we do with the church. Faith is something that we do with people. 
Now, it is certainly possible for you to make a commitment to Christ and to hold on to that and to work really hard at it and flourish. But actually, statistically speaking, that's not the way things work. People's faith is strongest when they're embedded in and participate in in a church community, in a local church. Some of that is that our faith, you know, there's this, this dual dimension to the Christian faith, right? We are God's children but we're also part of his body. So there's sort of that vertical horizontal that we talk about. And a lot of the decision isn't just a decision for Jesus that they're going to make, is they're going to make a decision, is the church my people, right? So in in First uh, Peter chapter 2, you know, it talks about how once you were not a people, but now you are a people. And, and we have to take that seriously because it is the people that are around you that come alongside you and say, is it well with your soul? It is the people that come along and encourage you to give, to volunteer, to do all of those kinds of things. And the community that you are part of shapes you, but that community also has to come alongside you and give you a role in that community. So you have to choose it, but it has to create a space inside the community for you to have that role. And that is how a Christian identity is formed. Mm, That's so good. And hearing you say that, Rick, it just... You know, as someone who's in church leadership, it so often it can be so easy to make the church some this consumeristic thing. Uh, people can come in. Uh, we don't ask too much because we want to keep them there and, and all these realities. But what you're saying, too, it just shows how important it is that we need to come alongside those that are part of our local church. Um, and not just in a kind of formalized way, but in a real brother-sister kind of way, because that's the reality of who we are. We are a family. And uh, to embrace them, because if it's true, I, I think you're c- completely right that the, the community of the local church will help shape the hearts of those that, that are there. So with young adults, exact same thing. I think that's so, that's so important. Yeah, can I just add this about uh, the, these roles in churches? I mean, often we'll talk about leadership roles and then everybody needs a leadership role. Well, leadership roles are good, but it's not exactly necessarily like that. You know, uh, I had some friends from university, and we used to go up to a cottage together. And when we got there, the after we hadn't seen each other for a while, what we would do is we would start lapsing into these conversations that we had in university, right? And everybody would relive the roles, but we all had a role in it, right? And so the role uh, had nothing to do with anything I was doing, but it was my place in that group, right? And my place in the group had those, those shared experiences. And so... There may not be a formal position that everybody votes on at the annual meeting that you can give everybody, right? But that isn't the most important thing. And they may not even be things that people want, but they have to feel like when they come in here that I belong here and that this group is diminished if I'm not here. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really good distinction. I'm glad you said that because it can be easy for us to think of only formalized roles, um, you know, with a, you have a title or something like that. But this, you're saying there's a, this sort of a more, more informal, organic role that just people just know and you know it too. And it's just sort of risen. So I think that's, that's a good point, Rick. I want to just quickly talk about this idea of universal Gnostic religious ethic or uh, Ugger, or I don't know how you guys call it, Uger or whatever. Um, yeah, firstly, you can explain what it is, and then also how that is one of the drawbacks, or I don't know what word you'd say, but one of the hindrances that can come about in a young adult's life as they are in this emerging adulthood time. Yeah, so I'll just kind of back up and say that one of the reasons that people are in an emerging adulthood phase in life is because they don't have the capacity to go on and be in adulthood. The, the other reason is, is that 
they don't want to move on to be an adult. When we interviewed young adults, we talked to them about about adulthood, and they would almost, to a person, describe it as the real world, right? And the real world is different than the emerging adulthood world because, you know, emerging adulthood, you're often in school and people are young, beautiful, healthy, right? Creating is easy. You're in control. You're in this socially rich environment with your friends. There's a great variety of activities. Uh, networking is easy and groups are customized to me because if I have someone in say in my social media group that I don't like I just click them away and <laughs> yeah, they don't yeah. even have to know that I did it right 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 but in the real in, in the real world right you know people are older less beautiful less healthy creating becomes hard others are in control like your boss it's in a socially isolating environment because you go to work and there's there's the same four people there, two of them you can't stand. <laughs> You're doing dull, repetitive activities. Networking is hard. And, and then you have to fit in with groups as they present themselves. Right? And churches like that, right? Everybody can think of someone they consider to be an unlovely person, but you can't click them away. <laughs> right, right. Right. And so why I talk about Gnosticism and, and, and this is that the distinction between emerging adulthood, the thing that characterizes them is emerging adulthood is sort of lived in kind of a digital world, right? Where the real world is kind of this hard, slow world. So you have a, a digital, easy, beautiful, new, that's that's emerging adulthood compared to uh, a physical, slow, hard, real world, old. And Gnosticism has this idea that, that along with a lot of heresies, that the physical world is somehow bad. And it has this idea that if I have this special knowledge, what I can do is escape this physical world and get back to some state, and the Greek word for it is, is pleroma, I can get back to the pleroma and escape this. And in our world here, we, we have a situation, um, well, let me, let me back up and, and address your question a little bit more and then we'll get to this. Where does this come from? This is a version of uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. So Christian Smith coined this in a book, uh, 2005, Soul Searching. And he said that this is the dominant religion in America today. Now, I say that it's 2005 because I want you to see how it shifted since 2005. And, it, and he, he had these five points, right? He said that a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when needed to solve a problem and good people go to heaven when they die. So that's moralistic therapeutic deism. When we talk to young adults, they talked in a similar way except God wasn't necessary, nor is a notion of heaven or hell, right? And so what we sort of distilled out of those interviews is this idea is that their five points are all religions are the same if you can get behind their external trappings. And, and this realization is understood as a kind of special knowledge for the enlightened, right? Other people don't understand that all world religions are the same, but I know it, so now I'm a part of the enlightened. A religion is functional. It fulfills a set of psychosocial functions. And and the psychosocial function that they're looking most for is social harmony, right? And so the most important thing is to preserve social harmony. Good human beings preserve social harmony. And a higher power is not necessary, nor is a notion of heaven or hell. And remember, we were talking with people who grew up in the church and attended at least monthly at some point. So these, are, these were people that weren't completely nominal. And when they talked about God, often they didn't mention Jesus. They would talk about a higher power. And if you probed a little bit to ask them, well, tell me about the higher power, 
well, they really wouldn't know. They really wouldn't know if the higher power was for them, but they would ask the higher power for help if they needed it, but they weren't sure if it would or why it would. Right, right. That's fascinating. And two things from that. One, it, it really does show that it's sort of this sort of uh, universal Gnostic religious ethic. It's kind of stripped of supernatural power in a sense. Uh, if, if the main essence is social harmony and there's not really any characteristics to a god, it's it's kind of, it's sort of naturalistic. Is that, would that be right to say that? Well, this is this is why we described it as an ethic, a religious ethic, because it, it has a religious presentation, but, but it's an ethic. So you can actually hold to this if you are able to uh, promote social harmony and recognize what they understand to be the sameness of all sort of creeds. Uh, you don't need any kind of religion at all. Yeah, yeah. This would be articulated fairly much like this in a lot of our interviews. So one of the other things that I, I think people need to realize is that young people deal with far more religious difference. When they go to school, they're, they're people in their class that are Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, atheist, agnostic, spiritual, none. And they really don't know what to do with that difference, right? A lot of our kids, if we ask them to... to uh, give a defense of the Christian faith, why do you believe? They would have a really hard time doing it. But now what they have to do is go to school and say, I understand, I can articulate what Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, or whatever is, and I can compare and contrast those with Christianity, and now I can tell you why I'm a Christian. And sometimes it's easier just to say that if we all just agree that none of that matters, then we can all just get along. And, and what it does is it allows them to quickly kind of come into community with everyone because the things that might have been a potential barrier to them coming into the community are all just set aside by everybody. We have so this common agreement that we're going to do this, and that's how we're going to get along because it is actually too much work to work through our differences. So we'll just say that they aren't there. Yeah, yeah. And obviously there's this sense of they, they want this unity. There's this natural sense of wanting harmony with everyone that has brought this, that has been a huge um, reason why they've decided to kind of think that way. So, okay, that's good. That's good. Let's kind of just shift the conversation a little bit more on what we can then do about this. So your, your study, I mean, emphasizes this idea of the importance of mentorship. And I mean, we see that just, you know, scattered across the Bible. I mean, we have uh, Joshua, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, disciples. We, it was just such a, a reality. So let's maybe finish this conversation with the importance of mentorship and how that can play a role in helping young adults uh, make connections in churches and in their own faith. Right. So the, the title of our report is Renegotiating Faith. And what we're talking really here about is that young adults have to renegotiate the, the roles that they have in churches. So I, I, I'll often say in my talks that if, if a young adult is 19 and they're in our church and they still have the same roles that they did when they were 11 in our church, they're probably gone. Sure. Okay. Overhead projector. Okay. Yeah. Right. And, and so <laughs> what tends to happen in our churches is we have programs and programs are really good, right? But what happens is they're age specific and they start and stop and they start and stop. And what we do is we get them into the, the big youth program in high school years in youth group and we make it great. Like the youth group is, is awesome. And then what we do at the end is we kick them out. And what they do in youth group is for the first time, their parents really aren't there in youth group, probably, and they negotiate their own roles and they find a place. And then we say, we just yank it right out from underneath them and we say they were gone. And so what I say to people is, is that your programs cannot be the relational glue into your church. 
if you're going to have a role and you're going to have a place, there are going to have to be relationships in your church that survive the starting and stopping of your programs. That's good. That's good. And this is why mentors are important because mentors come along behind your programs and they are the, the continuity in those relationships. And here's another thing that's really important when they're in high school and they're pushing away from you. What we found is that some people, if they can't find natural ways to uh, to find their own identity in, by finding a house, a job, a family, or whatever, if it's all delayed, they still want to distinguish themselves from their parents. And sometimes an easy way to do that is just to say, well, I'm going to do it with faith. And they'll reject the Christian faith. And so it becomes this candidate for differentiation. If you have all kinds of relationships in the church, people who value and love you, then that's off the table because to differentiate by rejecting the faith puts a strain on all those relationships that you're actually not trying to push away from right now. And I think that what we have to realize is that parents, when the kids are young, they are by far the most important in shaping the faith of their kids. Once they get to the place where they're trying to differentiate, you need the church to step in and help in a bigger way. The church always has to be in there helping, but the church is going to have a bigger role that's so good, Rick. And, and one of the things I just hear from you when you're saying all this is that things like apologetics are so good. Things like programs at your church, discipleship programs, they're good. But in and through all of this, the relationships are are just so key. These relationships where a godly man or a godly woman comes alongside someone and is transparent with their faith, transparent with their life, and just is a friend, is a is a brother or sister in Christ and helps them through these things. I mean, that's what I hear from you when you say that. And I just think that's essential. And, and yeah, and, and when we think about our churches, we always, we tend to think about our programs. I, I think programs are fine, but what our first question should be is about our relationships, right? We have to think about the quality of our relationships. And, uh, you know, it, it's like uh, my, my friend Sid Coop says, you know, what he's looking for with youth group is that the youth sponsors that are there, that they have good interaction with their kids and that's a win. He doesn't even let them uh, plan the events. He plans the events so that they can just go and experience the events with their kids. He doesn't want them doing the mechanics. He wants them talking with the kids, having fun with the kids, and having those times when the kids say, you know, hey, I've got this real question that I want to talk through because it creates that kind of opportunity. Thank you so much, Rick. That's so good. Um, we, we've come to our end of our conversation, obviously. And, and if you're listening um, and you're just interested more in the work that Rick and others have done, uh, Rick, what's the best way that they could get access to, to this? It is a free public download uh, at renegotiatingfaith.ca. And if you're interested in other things that I do, it's uh, evangelicalfellowship.ca. Awesome. So anyways, thank you so much, Rick, for joining us. And yeah, we do hope to have you on again soon because we got through about this much of the topics that I wanted to get into. So uh, yeah, thank you so much, Rick. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hey, this is Daniel Markin, host of In Doubt. December is a key month for In Doubt. It's the month that we raise much of the needed donations to sustain and grow our ministry into 2023. 
2022 was a great year engaging in important conversations about so many of the difficult questions of faith, life, and culture that young people are facing today. We want to thank you for listening, and we'd ask that if you share our heart for speaking the truth of the Bible into the lives of young people, that you would help us reach our year-end goal of $75,000 by December 31st. Thank you in advance, and all you need to do is call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca to make your gift today.